Good afternoon, everyone. Now, this morning, uh, the service is, it feels a bit more solemn because it's fitting of the passages that we're looking at. Uh, I'll ask you to now keep your Bibles open to Psalms 42 and 43, and also in your bulletin to take out the, the outline on page 3. <coughs> okay, before we begin, allow me to pray. Uh, I'll be praying this, but I hope that this will also become your own prayer to God as well. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Earlier in the announcements, Pastor Chris mentioned about a pastor in the US who committed suicide just uh, last week. Yeah, so it was on the 10th, uh, the 9th of September, last Monday, two Mondays ago, that Californian pastor and mental health advocate, Jared Wilson, died by suicide at the age of 30. Barely four hours before that, his wife had taken this video of him playing with their young son. Pastor Wilson suffered from depression, and in fact, he had co-founded this non-profit organization with his wife, to equip churches to help those with depression and other mental health issues. The next day, 10th September, was to be World Suicide Prevention Day. But very sadly, Pastor Wilson chose to end his life on that eve, leaving behind his wife, Julian, and two sons. Yes, Christian pastors and leaders do struggle with mental health issues like depression. We are normal people like you. In fact, according to a survey by the Schaefer Institute, over a third of Reformed and Evangelical pastors in the U.S. regularly suffer from discouragement or depression. That is more than two times the 15% of the general population right, who report experiencing depression in their lifetime. Perhaps you think oh, it's just that pastors are more honest, uh, or perhaps not. Locally, the statistics aren't much better. According to the 2016 Singapore Mental Health Survey, which was released December last year, around 14%, or one in seven Singaporeans, so just look around where we are seated, out of every seven of us, one of us would experience some kind of mental disorder in their lifetime. And they also identified this treatment gap, which, which is that about three-quarters of those afflicted don't seek medical or professional help. What hope and help are there for us as you and I experience discouragement or even depression? And even if you think that yourself you are very bubbly and you don't see yourself as depressed, you don't foresee yourself feeling downcast in the future, how do we know that ourselves or our loved ones wouldn't one day be struck with some kind of mental health issue? What can and what should we do when our soul is downcast? The psalmist offers himself as an example, a case study for us in Psalms 42 and 43. So these two Psalms, even though they are divided in our Bibles, they were likely originally one. And they share the same title, right? In, chapter, uh, in Psalm 41, uh, 42, to the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. So this word maskil, likely means a song that teaches. It's meant to instruct us. 
And this teaching song comes as a personal lament from the mouth of the psalmist. Through these psalms, we hear the psalmist crying out to us in a mental state that today we might call depression. So what is it that a depressed person can teach us? In Psalm 42, the, the psalmist speaks first to himself as he experiences dryness of soul in verses 1 to 5. And then in verses 6 to 11, ironically, his soul is now drowning. In Psalm 43, he finally cries out in prayer to God because God is his soul's deliverer, he says. There is a threefold refrain at the end of each of these sections that ties all, all of that together. The writer we hear is from the sons of Korah. So who are they? The sons of Korah are a Levite family that was judged by God in Numbers 16. But some of them were spared, so they are also objects of God's mercy. They were assigned later by David to lead in the temple music much like our music team this morning in church. We aren't given much details of his situation. Some people suggest that he's a Levite who followed David as he escaped from his son Absalom. Others say that he probably wrote later during the Babylonian exile. So there's no way to be certain. The psalm itself doesn't tell us much. But this actually allows us to more easily appropriate the psalm for ourselves. And the psalmist's first situation was his experience of dryness, of God's silence. In verse 1, the psalmist opens up with a cry to God. Uh, please read this together with me. As a deer pants for flowing streams. Some of you may be familiar with the modern chorus, as the deer pants, as the deer panteth for water, right? Well, unlike that song, which is sung as a love song to God, this psalm is a lament. It's a cry of deep yearning, of desperate gasping for breath, of frantic thirsting for water. The psalmist likens himself to an exhausted deer looking for refreshing streams of water. Perhaps he had just escaped the hot pursuit of a predator. But there had just been a drought and water was nowhere to be found. Now, if you look at me, you know that I've never run a marathon before. But perhaps a modern-day equivalent of this may be a marathoner on the last 10 kilometers or the last six miles of the route, which is often seen as the toughest stretch. Some people describe it as like hitting the wall. Your legs are complaining, your body is out of glycogen, and your head is all in a haze like the air out there. Now imagine that the organizers mess us up. They mess up the water point and your intense thirst is unquenched as you must continue to root. In the same way, the psalmist cries out in verse 2, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? It is a cry from his soul, his inner being. The life-giving water that he craves is the living God himself. God's presence is his sustenance for life. So when, when will he appear before God? Has God messed up? Verse 3, he continues, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Although his soul is 
completely dry. His cheeks are thoroughly drenched. He yearns to see God in the midst of constant sorrow because of the relentless taunting. Yet God remains elusive to him. Later in verse 10, these same adversaries will again taunt him with the same words, Where is your God? Perhaps owing to his pitiful state, his foes have concluded that his God is either fake or that he has been abandoned by God. The psalmist adds on to his sorrow as he continues to recall the past. In verse 4, <coughs> let's read this together. <coughs> How I would go with a throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. See, as one of the sons of Korah, he would lead the festive processions that head up to the temple in Jerusalem. And along the way, the sons of Korah would lead the congregation to praise God with shouts and in songs. But now for this psalmist, in place of the glad shouts are only tears of sorrow. Instead of the songs of praise are the words of taunting, from his enemies. Sometimes it seems looking back at our former days of glory may only heighten the bleakness of our present gloom. So recently I was sharing with my wife, June, as I look back at my life, and I started to realize that I may be undergoing midlife crisis. Right? And midlife crisis can set in any time between uh, from the age of 35 to their 50s. And I'm halfway there, so I'm, I'm probably in my midlife crisis. When do you know you are in midlife crisis? The day that you realize that you can't address the hawkers and the taxi drivers as uncles and aunties anymore because you've fallen under that same category. <laughs> Those that we once considered were one generation ahead of us, suddenly they have become our peers. We found ourselves rummaging old photographs through the albums, right? which again tells us how old we are because we use albums. We reminisce the past in nostalgia and we regret our present circumstances. So what do some people do? Well, there are different responses. Some may make drastic changes like buying that dream sports car. Or some may get more obsessed with appearances to be attractive again. Some will replace old friends with younger ones so that they will feel younger. Some might switch careers and so on. Right? And it's also because of this, I think many in their 40s and 50s end up committing adultery as well because they crave the respect and affection from someone else other than their spouses. Or they may file for divorce or go into depression. And some of us don't really get out of our midlife crisis, even in our 60s and 70s. This season of dryness may turn into years of despair as we contemplate our our mortality that's coming. Well, if you're younger and you're wondering what this has to do with you, as I once did, hear the, the advice of the teacher in Ecclesiastes 12. It says, remember, <clears throat> remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. One day, these evil days will come for every one of us. But whether we are younger or older, anyone, any of our soul, can still feel dry. 
Sometimes it could be due to the loss of a loved one. It could be due to the loss of a, an unborn baby. Could be, there could be years of grieving afterwards. It could also be due to sustained ill health, intense hardship in our studies or at work, conflicts with people. Other times we just try, but we, we are not able to pinpoint a specific cause at all. Christians do get depressed too, and it's not just due to spiritual reasons like sin in our lives. It can also be due to physical, emotional, or psychological causes. So we mustn't so quickly conclude that it is necessarily due to our faults or sin, or that we are not true Christians. That's why we are depressed. And we shouldn't ever think that of others who tell us that they, face, they, they feel this way as well. In such seasons of dryness, what we can do is to be honest with God, to be open with ourselves as the psalmist was. Don't try to fake it until we make it. Rather, speak to your soul in the words of Psalm 42, verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. See, for the psalmist, this self-exaltation to hope in God doesn't immediately help him to escape dryness as yet. The emphasis of the refrain in verse 5 is on the deep darkness in the first half of the verse. The hope in the second half still feels quite far off for him. The psalmist remains downcast and dry in his soul as God still feels distant and silent to him. Going on to verse 6, there is a drastic change now as the psalmist remembers God's past dealings with him. In verse 6, he says, let's read together, My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. This land of Jordan and of Hermon, the Mount Mizar, it may be the psalmist's homeland. It could be places that he's visited in the past. It's perhaps on this great mountain range that he at once experienced the precious presence of God. And in those days, the psalmist recalls in verse 8, By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. He remembers God's covenantal faithfulness to him by day and abiding presence by night. Words used to flow to him in prayer and praise to the God of my life. But now as he looks at his present circumstances, all he feels is his soul drowning. Verse 7, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Instead of the still water and the flowing streams of the Jordan that he craves for, his soul was over, overwhelmed by the rushing waterfalls and the raging waves. It seems as if God had thrown everything at him and his soul was suffocating. Notice how the psalmist here doesn't attribute these things to him that happened to him by the chance or to the natural order of things or even to, to midlife crisis. But he attributes it to God because he acknowledges that God is sovereign over all. This is personal. 
the psalmist has asked for God's presence, and now he has received more than he bargained for. It is your waterfalls, your breakers, and your waves that have gone over me. Jonah, as he was thrown into the sea in Jonah chapter 2, and he prays to God, he may have been alluding to this precise verse. In verse 9, he continues to speak. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? See, the rock that he used to go to find refuge in has suddenly become a hidden rock that bashes his head in as he falls head down into the waterfall of distress. Like a deadly wound in his bones, his enemies gouge him. They, they, they oppress him with repeated taunts, reminding him that God, your God, has not heard, has not answered your cries for help. The, the psalmist masters up faith to cry once more to his soul with this refrain. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. The emphasis remains still in the first half of this refrain, but perhaps his recalling of God's steadfast love has stirred in him a faint hope for God's deliverance from his current circumstances. And so we find in, in Psalm 43, the psalmist moves from his soliloquy to prayer, from self-talking to talking to God. And he prays in Psalm 43, verse 1. Let's read together. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning? See, he recalls that in verse 1, God had been his vindicator and defender in the past. And he calls upon him in the present to deliver him from his ungodly and unjust opponents. In verse 2, since God has been his refuge, he has no reason to reject the psalmist and to make him go about mourning because of his enemy. Verse 3, he continues to pray, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. The psalmist desires to return to worship in the temple of God again. And in verse 4, he, he sees himself ministering again at the altar. He wants to find in, in God his exceeding joy. He wants to praise God with the lyre again. So what's the lesson here for us? I think one lesson we can learn here is that we can talk to ourselves all we want, as the psalmist did, but unless and until we talk to God, we won't ever find deliverance for our soul. The psalmist recognizes God to be his deliverer, and he desires to experience the salvation of God again. Now, just to be clear, the psalmist is not yet out of the darkness not at this point. But now he knows that his God has not forsaken him. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. 
his final refrain is now filled with slightly more hope, with this longing to praise God, to call God his personal salvation and God. In two days' time, 24th of September, it will be the exact one-year anniversary. Right? Last year, on 24th of September, I went for a very routine ultrasound scan uh, at the polyclinic. And some of you may recall this because I shared in a pastoral newsletter last year. <clears throat> the very next day after the scan, I got this call to see the doctor at the polyclinic because they saw something abnormal in the scan. And this is the first time I'm sharing this scan. So after further scans and doctor's visits, it was finally concluded that uh, it was quite likely what is called a gastrointestinal stroma tumour, or GIST for short. And there's a chance that this may be cancer because there, the, the size of the tumour and there were also uh, enlargement of the lymph nodes. So based on the size of the tumour, we went to read up. It was likely stage 4. After two inconclusive biopsies, a surgery was finally planned to remove the tumour uh, last year in mid-November. But by God's grace, the final biopsy found that the tumour was a benign gastric strinoma. So how did I feel when initially we received the diagnosis that it could, it could likely be cancer? Well, it was, initially it was like how the psalmist felt in the second section of Psalm 42. I felt completely overwhelmed. I had to cry out to God in despair, pleading especially not for myself, but for my wife and our three young children. Oh God, what will happen to them if I go home to you now? So now that I know that it was not cancer, I have been cleared. How do I feel? Initially, I felt relief. I felt thanksgiving to God. I could cry out with the psalmist. Hope, with hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. But very strangely, I also had what some people call survivor's guilt. You see, after returning to work one month after I was discharged on Christmas Day itself last year, Almost immediately, within a few weeks, I witnessed a few deaths in our congregation. Saints, brothers and sisters in Christ, whose cries for deliverance were never heard, this side of heaven, so it seems. And nowadays, perhaps owing to the, to the surgery that I went through, it was an open one, quite major surgery, and perhaps also due to my aging, I often feel very lethargic. Some days I find my cry is more of this. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? This is more my experience now rather than the second half of the refrain. There is this tension within. And I, I, I shared recently with one of my fellow pastors that sometimes it feels as if it had been better if God had taken me home last year than for me to remain on earth. Perhaps it's a bit like what Paul himself felt in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account, account of the church, and also on account of my young family. Now, don't get me wrong. I still do find joy in ministry, and I still especially find joy in my family. And I'm not sharing this so that you will come and pat me on the back later and pity me. It's not for self-glory. But I pray that my openness will also free up others 
to talk more openly about your personal struggles. And also to clarify, I haven't had any personal thoughts of suicide. Perhaps the one time I may have contemplated it, perhaps it was during my junior college days. Now, some of you know that I read a lot, so you think, you assume that I'm doing quite well academically. But actually, in my studies, I was struggling at the time. I was thinking of giving it all up, perhaps including my life. And it was actually through a brother in Christ that God encouraged me. And how did he do that? Well, this brother in Christ made himself vulnerable to me by sharing his own struggles. And he took out his old report book from a few years ago and showed me his scores. And he thought that that would comfort me. Well, in a way, God did use that to comfort me. And the brother actually comes to ARPC now, usually this service, but I don't see him around today. So yeah, he doesn't know. But God actually did use that experience that brother's vulnerability to really comfort me, to help me to see that, hey, my struggle is not the end. This brother went through it. But perhaps right now, my present experience is more like the Sami's feeling of dryness. And I wish that today I can tell you that I have, I have walked out of that darkness. But I'm not yet out of that darkness. But like the Psalmist, I know, I do know, that God has not forsaken me. And what has really helped me through so far is just what the Psalmist discovered as well. Firstly, to start to become open and honest with God and with myself and perhaps even with others about my feelings and to understand why I feel the way I feel. Essentially, is to ask gently to myself, why are you so cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Ask gently and not judgmentally. So first, I started to read up a, a bit more about emotions. I need to get in touch with my emotions. And so a good book I read was this book called Untangling Emotions. And it has a section, it's a commentary on Psalm 42. This is what the author said. Why do we so often feel like our emotions are controlling us rather than the other way around? Why can't we simply choose to feel different any time we want to? This isn't a new question. The, the author of Psalm 42 provides us with one of the clearest examples of it in the Bible. Even as he fights to remember the good things God has done and urges himself to hope in the Lord, his feelings seem to stay stuck, doggedly resisting his efforts to change them. This lack of immediate change in the psalmist's feelings, however, doesn't mean his battle with his feelings is pointless, nor does it mean he's fighting poorly. It simply means that he's human. And it's precisely because the psalmist is human and he recognizes it that he turns to his God in prayer in Psalm 43. And that was the beginning of his turning point. So the second thing that I find helpful is like him, to pray to God. But how do I pray when sometimes the words don't come to me? Well, we could use the words of the Psalms. We could read through the Psalms and particularly the Psalms of Lament. We can also sing them as they were originally written for. And some modern songwriters have put the Psalms to music and some of them even give it a Christological twist. Right? So I've really found this singing psalms helpful during this season in my life. Here are just sharing five of these albums that do contain Psalm 42 in music. 
And one of these is actually a band, the one on the bottom right. It's actually a band from Melbourne, and they call themselves Sons of Korah. Right? So like the Sons of Korah, they put psalms to music. So you might want to consider either reading or listening to these psalms to put, give yourself voice to lament. Thirdly, as a church, collectively, perhaps we can also think about how we can give voice to our brothers and sisters who are lamenting. In other words, to learn to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Did you know that, according to how you count it, around 46 to 58 of the Psalms, right, which is about a third of these 150 Psalms, are categorized as Psalms of lament, whether individual laments like today or communal, as we will read next week in Psalm 44. But if you think about it, how many of the songs that we sing in our churches today are lament. I'm not saying that we should structure the whole service and it's just lament all the way, but perhaps today's choice of songs will be a good example of how it will be a good mix and it's especially appropriate for the passage that we are looking at today. So I must really commend the music team for this weekend for choosing these songs. One of the brothers, our brothers here in ERPC has also uh, contributed a chapter to this newly launched book, Right? So he shares vulnerably about his personal struggle with depression and his recent near episode with suicide. I was going to quote extensively from, from his very helpful sharing. I made a lot of notes on it. But I thought I'd better get permission from him first because it was just released. I haven't had a chance to catch up with this brother recently. But perhaps this will help to get you interested enough to get a hold of this book, to read it and understand more about mental health issues and how we as a church can help one another to overcome it. Lastly, the lesson, the main lesson for me to learn was that to lament doesn't mean that I lack faith. We have got the Lord's own example in Mark 15. In Mark 15, as, like the psalmist, the Lord Jesus faced the thorns of wicked men as he was crucified on the cross. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who will destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, laba sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus utters a lament to God, quoting from Psalm 22, because he was the ultimate innocent sufferer. He felt abandoned by God as he took our sins on himself. And yet he was precisely because he was forsaken that God doesn't forsake us. And Jesus remains hopeful in God till the end, as the rest of Psalm 22 will make clear. And he longs to praise God in the midst of his congregation. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus was God's vindication of his innocent suffering. And we also do see an instance of New Testament lament in Revelation 6, verses 9 and 10. When the angel opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God 
and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So you see, brothers and sisters, as the Lord's servants here on earth, as servants of the suffering Lord, we, the church, will also suffer on earth. And you and I rightly cry out to God for His deliverance and vindication. But in the suffering Saviour, the Lord Jesus, God has shown us that He has not been silent. He does care for us, especially about our eternal separation from Him because of our sin. And that is why Jesus died forsaken by God on the cross. He did something about our separation with God. He has delivered us from God's judgment and wrath so that now we can know God's presence and we can know God's steadfast love even in the darkest day of our sorrows. Pastor Jared Wilson, before he took his life, he sent out this series of tweets. And although his death was tragic, his words remain true. This is what he said. Loving Jesus doesn't always cure suicidal thoughts. Loving Jesus doesn't always cure depression. Loving Jesus doesn't always cure post-traumatic stress disorder. Loving Jesus doesn't always cure anxiety. But that doesn't mean Jesus doesn't offer us companionship and comfort. He always does that. So may our remembrance of God's love for us in His Son, the promise of Christ's abiding presence, and the peace of the Holy Spirit bring us through even those dry and dark seasons of our lives. May we first learn to turn to God and open up to Him and talk to Him about our feelings. And if you are experiencing an intense drought that just wouldn't go away, or you are feeling overwhelmed, your soul is drowning, then please call for help. There are helplines to all our hospitals and mental institutes. You can also speak to the pastor and your, one of your DG leaders about this as well, so that they can help you to intervene. If you are perhaps thinking, how can I help others or help myself to cope with mental issues, then come for the mental wellness talk right, next month on the Christian perspective on suicide to learn to, how to can, we can help others and help ourselves as well. Shall we go to God in prayer? And we, we just commit what we just heard to God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Father, when our soul goes through times of dryness, when we are being overwhelmed by your flood, help us to turn to you in prayer. In our times of deepest and utmost weakness, please deliver us from helpless despair and draw us to your love for us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. He will always hold us fast until our faith is turned to sight and we shall see him face to face. And it is through Christ that we can know your abiding presence and steadfast love. Amen.